Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Tegel about his essay, Notes on Looking Back, which appeared in issue 22 of The Common. Stephen Tegel is the recipient of fellowships from the Institute of Current World Affairs, Asian American Writers Workshop, Lambda Literary, and Fulbright Greece, as well as a Soros Fellowship for New Americans. A graduate of the UMass Amherst MFA program, he has been published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, The Rumpus, Hobart, Them, and Nea Estia. Originally from California, he now lives in Greece. Stephen Tegel, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's it's so terrific to be on the other side of this. Would you set the scene for our conversation? Just describe sort of where you're living, where you're calling from. Yeah, of course. So I'm uh, speaking to you uh, from Alexandrupoli, which is a city in uh, the most northeastern corner of Greece. Uh, it's a place, a part of the mainland that most uh, most Americans and many Greeks have not been. Uh, it's bordered by uh, Bulgaria and Turkey, and uh, I'm Alexandrupoli is sort of a small little town with um, just pretty much one main street along the sea, and then one north north south street, and um, you know it's a small quiet little town with uh, bike lanes, and um, there's a large uh, police and soldier presence because they kind of guard the border. Um, but it has all the necessities that you you would need, um, lots of cute little places to eat and have coffee, uh, and it's sort of the gateway to um, these kind of beautiful uh, little little villages in the most the most uh, north northeast corner of uh, of Greece. Wow, that sounds really interesting. That is a very exotic loca- locale to be calling from for a podcast. <laughs> um, I would love if you would start us off with a reading from your essay. Would you do the first few paragraphs for us? Of course, I'd be happy to. Okay, so this, these are the first two paragraphs of Notes on Looking Back. Last year, I wandered through Greece, knocking on all the gates of Hades. I walked along the Acheron River, whose icy blue waters seemed colored by the spirits of the dead. Stalactites dripped onto the back of my neck as a silent boatman ferried me through the caves of Diros. I searched for the entrance to the sea cave at Cape Teneron, scrambling over sharp rocks below the lighthouse as darkness fell. Sometimes I wondered if my search for the underworld tempted the fates. I remembered Orpheus, the father of music, who charmed beasts with his lyre and descended into Teneron to find his lost bride, Eurydice. With song, he implored Hades and Persephone to bring her back to life, and his words moved the deathless gods to tears. 
they granted his wish, allowing him to lead her out of the underworld on one condition. He must walk ahead of her, not looking back until they left the dark halls of death. Approaching the surface, the farthest reach of light, Orpheus feared his love's silence behind him. He turned to look and saw her sink back to the depths, reaching out to him and bidding him farewell for the last time. Retelling this myth, I'm amazed that in Greek, the word death, thanatos, has not changed in almost three millennia. Homer used the same word in the 8th century BCE to describe the warriors who fell like leaves in the Iliad. He called the sea Thalassa and man Andra, just as Greeks do today. I have traveled extensively through Greece to visit mythological sites, but Greek mythology exists within the language too. Modern Greek evolved from ancient Greek, so it retains a connection to the Olympian gods that then passed into English. For example, the word panic, panikos in Greek, has its roots in the name of the god Pan and means sudden and unexplained fear or awe, the same feeling that the protector of shepherds and hunters inspires in those who enter his realm. The words music, musiki in Greek, and museum, museo, come from the nine muses, goddesses of the arts and sciences, the source of inspiration for poets, dancers, and musicians. Thank you so much for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your essay yet, would you just describe generally what the piece is about? Yeah, sure. So this essay is sort of a love letter to Greece and also to the Greek language. It's about my my love and fascination for the sounds that certain letters and certain combinations of letters make in Greek words, and also how many Greek words sort of if you break them up into their roots and suffixes and prefixes, they, they create a story um, that describe the meaning of each word. And the essay is also an exploration of how living in Greece has transformed me personally and how it's transformed my writing. That's great. I know you originally wrote this essay a few, a few years ago now, but, you know, before the pandemic. And, and of course, after two years of pandemic life, it was such a pleasure to read about the, these travels that you have around Greece and, and all the meeting new people and being adopted by families and invited to holiday meals. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how Greece has weathered the pandemic, like what it's, what it's been like there. Yeah, of course. Um, so I feel like Greece, I was very impressed by how Greece handled the pandemic. Um, you know, I feel like um, Greece is a small country. And, um, you know, I think you, at the beginning of the pandemic, you wouldn't have expected um, this, this sort of really comprehensive uh, response that the, the Greek government has made. But, um, you know, when the even before the, the first case was um, found in Greece, there was a plan put in action where they identified certain hospitals throughout the country that would take in COVID patients. Um, they, there was a big jump in sort of digitization of uh, 
kind of government services and COVID-related processes during the pandemic. So, for example, uh, during the lockdown, which began in, in March, we had to send a text message to the government uh, in order to go grocery shopping, to go to, um, you know, to the grocery store or to a pharmacy. And that kind of, I guess, tracked how many people were out at any one time and sort of um, you know, made sure that there weren't too many people out in a specific uh, area. And then also with the, with the vaccination campaign, um, you know, they have this really um, kind of high-tech system where uh, you can just really very easily make an appointment online, find a place near you that has appointments available and schedule your appointment. And then they give you a digital certificate that you can keep on your phone so that um, in or- right now, in order to enter a cafe, most indoor spaces, a restaurant, a movie theater, you have to show your vaccination certificate. So um, they have this app that scans your QR code and validates your certificate um, and so they check um, each person who enters uh, an indoor space like that, which is, mm-hmm. you know, makes you feel really, really comfortable, like really safe. Mm. That's great. Wow. I mean, that seems like that has been a fairly good place to weather the pandemic. <laughs> it has. I mean, the only thing is that it, you're right. It has been really hard to travel, especially during lockdown. You weren't allowed to leave your uh, your kind of region or prefecture. So I, you know, for example, I got my, I had this really little apartment in Athens and I, uh, specifically got an apartment that small because I thought I would be traveling all the time. But um, mm-hmm. during the pandemic for about, you know, a year and a half, I was, I was stuck in that little apartment sitting at my kitchen table all day. And that mm-hmm. was a big uh, change from the, the lifestyle that you read about in my essay. <laughs> yes. So just because I'm, I'm really curious, can you tell us how you ended up living in Greece? Like, did, did you first go on a Fulbright? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it's, it's kind of amazing because, Five years ago, before um, before I came to Greece on my Fulbright, I I knew relatively little about the country. I mean, my idea of it was, you know, the Acropolis, um, you know, Mykonos and Santorini, kind of the, <laughs> the most basic, and Greek mythology, which I've loved ever since I was little. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the project that I proposed for my Fulbright was to um, visit places in Greece related to Greek myths. And that connected to my writing because when I was, um, during my final years at in the MFA program at UMass Amherst, I was really thinking about how to uh, retell Greek myths and fairy tales um, and to sort of queer them or to explore is- other issues of identity that um, aren't usually covered in uh, in, in these older myths. So how to, how to refresh them, how to renew them, and also how to use them to explore personal narratives um, in, in the metaphorical sense. So I became really invested in, um, in these myths, which I, you know, I've loved since I was a kid. And it, during my Fulbright, it was so, such a powerful experience to visit uh, these dramatic landscapes in Greece. I think people, um, you know, unless you've traveled a lot in Greece, it's hard to understand just how uh, how diverse the landscapes are here. They, in addition, you know, in addition to the islands and the beaches, um, there are mountains, there are gorges, waterfalls. Um, there are some islands that are much greener, 
there are islands that are more desert-like. Um, and I think one thing that I really discovered is that it makes sense why the ancient Greeks um, created gods that were related to natural phenomena because um, the natural elements of the country, it's dramatic cliffs and powerful sunsets and uh, kind of its rivers, its waterfalls, they have such a visceral power. And, you know, if you go to an olive grove where the olive trees are like thousands of years old and they're huge and gnarled, they have this physical presence um, where you could see how they could be related to nymphs or to satyrs or to gods. So Mm -hmm. um, I was really overwhelmed by by the nature in Greece. Yeah, that's a, that's such an interesting point. I, I I bet you're right. You know that they would they would see all those things and and, and put them into their myths and into their gods. Um, I'm I'm kind of sort of curious. Like, what do you think would surprise people about life in Greece? Like, either your daily life or, or the the daily life of people in Greece. Hmm. I would say. I feel like in, in some ways, I mean, one thing that really surprised me is just how, first of all, how welcoming people are. Um, the, the sense of uh, philoxenia or Greek hospitality, it's something that you hear about, but just to, to see it in action and to find kind of be welcomed by people here um, was something that it always continues to surprise me. Like, for example, I, you know, today... I went up to these villages in, in uh, the northern part of Evros uh, because today is uh, the Theophania or Epiphany, and it's um, sort of a uh, like a sort of a religious holiday. But they, there are certain traditions that the d- different villages have. Um, usually, in most places, um, there's sort of this diving for the cross. So. Um, the, a priest will go to uh, a beach, a port, uh, a river, and they will give a blessing and sort of bless the waters and they will throw a cross uh, into the water. And then, and then you have uh, like a group of young men usually who dive into the water um, to retrieve the cross. And mm-hmm. it has to do with the blessing of the water, with sort of water being related to life and um especially for farmers here there there and there's a lot of agriculture in this uh, area so it's sort of uh, really important for the annual cycle of the crops and for um, kind of the cycle of life uh, in the new year um, so I, I went up to this village called uh, Dadia and I didn't know anyone but um, you know one of um, the president of the Ethnological Museum here in Alexandrupoli uh, gave me this tip. She was like, uh, you know, they're doing a very rare tradition uh, today in this village, so you, you have to go. So I went with my camera. I just kind of showed up at the church at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I made a couple of friends who just after, you know, they saw that I was new there, they invited me for coffee. And we hung out throughout the day and followed these activities that were happening in the village. Uh, I went to this, uh, this woman's house and her mother fed me and uh, I'm going to go back, I think, in two weeks for another, um, another traditional uh, kind of feast or, or uh, tradition. And so there's just this way, 
I mean, no matter how many times it happens, and people have been so hospitable to me um, in the years since I've been here. It's just, I think it's always still su- such a surprise, and so mm-hmm. um, kind of they're so different from anything I'm used to used to experiencing. Um, just the way that people will sort of enfold you into their lives uh, and kind of take you under their wing. Yeah, it sounds kind of magical, honestly. <laughs> Um, I, I, I definitely got that. <laughs> yeah, I definitely got that sense. Uh, you know, reading your essay, that the way that people would be so welcoming—it sounds lovely. Uh, there is so much love of Greece and, and for the Greek language in this piece, and, and it really reads like a like a love letter to those things. And I enjoyed the, the inclusion of mythology, as you mentioned, those figures sort of drifting in and out of the piece. What inspired you to start work on this essay? So uh, I began this essay in 2018 when I was living in New York. I, I had just finished my, uh, my Fulbright, and I'd come back to finish a fellowship with the Asian American Writers Workshop. And so I'd just come back from Greece, and I was missing it so much. Um, and I was also kind of afraid that I was quickly losing the, the Greek language skills that I'd developed during my, uh, my year in Greece. So... I think that fear, that longing to return, uh, and also reading uh, Jupila Hiri's book, In Other Words, uh, in which she describes her efforts to learn Italian, and uh, she wrote the book in Italian, and it was translated into English. Um, you know, reading about, you know, sort of her daring to do that uh, motivated me to to try my hand at it in Greek and see what would come out, because... Uh, until then, I'd really uh, mostly used Greek as sort of a an everyday tool uh, to get by, to 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 speak with people, but I hadn't really tried to use the language in a more uh, artistic and considered way. And so, you know, I had also always wanted to do uh, some translation from Greek into English or from English into Greek, and. Uh, I had never thought that I had reached a point where I where I um, felt comfortable doing that, but for some reason, um, sort of using my own words or experiences as material made it seem easier for me to take that leap. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think the, that combination of things um, it was an exercise to to keep my Greek up and a way to connect with this country that I. Uh, felt so sort of indebted to and have felt such a connection to. Oh, I love that. So normally this is where I would ask if the piece came together quickly or not, but, but you also, you sort of tangle with that process right in the text of the essay itself. Uh, you talk about sort of free writing the first draft and enjoying the words and then not wanting to revise it, then struggling to revise it. Uh, what, can, what can you tell us about the process of writing this sort of writing an essay, but also writing in a second language um, just in general? Yes, I mean it was, it was it was a you know, uh, it took about a year or a little bit longer than a year, and I think it, um, it was sort of it was a process that covered a gamut of emotions. There was sort of this euphoria or this freedom of being able to write in Greek, even though I was writing slowly, uh, and I also for this essay I sort of changed up my. Um, my writing process in that I was writing on my um, on my iPad and 
usually I had my iPad and then I had my Greek English dictionary next to me and I would just kind of turn back and forth from one to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I, I was writing on my iPad is because um, I could write on the keyboard there in Google Docs and um, the Apple iOS would help me with the autocomplete of the word. So <laughs> that made it much easier to write in Greek and to write sort of correctly without misspellings. Um, mm-hmm. I think when I type uh, in Word on my computer, I'm, I feel much more alone. <laughs> so, That's so there, interesting. Was, there was that kind of uh, sort of technological thing that, that helped process-wise. Um, and I thought, so I was just kind of like, you know, typing very slowly, sort of with uh, two fingers, pretty much. And uh, I was kind of writing at the pace of thinking, because it, in Greek, I feel like I formed the sentences uh, more slowly. And so I was able to sort of keep the pace in that way. Um, and so then it felt like, after a while, it felt like an essay that I could just keep writing and writing and just keep adding paragraphs to. <laughs> um, and there was this just this really interesting phenomenon where if I spent too much time away from a certain part of the essay, it would sort of translate itself back out of my understanding. So mm-hmm. after a while, these paragraphs that I had written would kind of become mysterious to me again or become almost undecipherable. So there was sort of this time... I felt like there was this time pressure to finish the essay before I sort of forgot what uh, what exactly I had written. Um, and it, I think what I struggled most with was to sort of um, look at the essay, kind of step back from the essay, look at it holistically, and then figure out what would be a fitting end uh, for the piece. Um, because it sort of, took me out of having my my face so close to the essay and just sort of creating new material, but then mm-hmm. having to step back and sort of synthesize it, um, which I, I guess I wasn't, uh, I didn't have experience doing in Greek, and then sort of finding a way to structurally bring it to a close. Um, so that's what I struggled with in the last, in the last few months. Um, well, the good news is you came to a great ending. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So you have so many publications, and it re- it really feels like you've been living the writer life for for years. You know, since you graduated. I wonder if you have any advice for emerging writers, sort of thinking about what a life committed to writing really looks like. Um. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good question. I mean, it's, I feel like I'm still figuring that out in some. In, Um, in many ways but I feel like it's I mean one of my instructors uh, my undergrad writing instructors from Stanford told me that uh, writing the writing life is a marathon it's not a sprint so um, you know take your time with your work um, take time um, building experiences which are sort of the, the foundation for my writing at least um, and since I've been in Greece, uh, I've tried every day to sort of keep a journal of what I observe, people I meet, uh, things I witness. And uh, that has kind of grown into 
multiple Google Docs of <laughs> these sort of captain's logs. Um, I feel like writing is the writing life is harder than I imagined it would be when I first started out. Um, you have to deal with a lot of rejection, um, mm-hmm. a lot of time just by yourself, uh, sitting with your butt in your chair and trying to make something work. And I think the the thrilling thing and the frustrating thing about writing is that the challenges that you face are, are always different. Um, you know, every, every piece of writing presents new challenges and that's why writing mm-hmm. is always exciting and it's also why it can be uh, frustrating <laughs> um, <laughs> yes and i think i think as a writer you are constantly walking this tightrope between time and money um you need to have enough time to write and devote to your craft uh and at the same time you have to put food on the table so um for me you know i've sort of vastly between um, going on these uh, year or two year long fellowships, which I've been um, very fortunate to receive Mm -hmm. from different organizations, but also, um, you know, trying to find work that um, will, will satisfy me uh, creatively, um, will, but will also give me enough time to work on my own work and, you know, it's a it's a constant challenge, but I think you, um, for many for many writers, I think it's writing is a sort of necessity. It's not uh, a luxury, and so mm-hmm. I think you you make time to do the work so that you can express yourself and connect with other people, and that that is its own reward. I think. So you write a, across a lot of different genres. You've done some more journalistic work, and, and you write fiction and poetry too. And one thing I, I read of yours just in preparing for this that that really stayed with me was an, an essay about the time you spent with refugees in a camp in Greece. It was mm-hmm. really, really moving. And I wondered if, if you'd just talk a little bit about that piece and that experience. Yeah, sure. So uh, this this essay, uh, which was uh, published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, it, it's uh, called under the shadow flag, uh, a week in the Basilica refugee camp. And this was actually one of the first experiences I had um, during my Fulbright when I, when I moved to Greece. I went up with a, a group of friends to Thessaloniki, and there was a camp just outside of the city um, where refugees were being kept. And it, what was amazing to me was that it felt like a completely different world from... Um, Thessaloniki, which is Greece's second largest city. It's um, a city by the sea. It's beautiful, uh, has great food and dessert, you know, but uh, the camp was its own small sort of enclosed world. It was, um, I think, built on, um, it was like an old factory that was uh, sort of like a military camp. And there were lines of tents inside of these sort of abandoned uh, bunkers or warehouses. And Mm -hmm. there was um, sort of a a makeshift day camp that um, this NGO had built across the street in sort of uh, this yard. um, And they offered sort of, they had a women's space, they had a Little, they created a little kitchen where um, the refugees could come and cook and also uh, different activities for the young children who were living in the camp. And so um, 
we went there for a week. It was a it was a group of us, and we uh, helped out at the camp, taught a little bit of English, participated in the um, activities that they held there. But we were also trying to um, you know speak with the migrants, learn about their journeys, um, and see what they um, what they had in mind for their futures, like what their hopes were. Uh, and why they had decided to make this really difficult journey. And I, uh, I took my camera there. I, um, I took a lot of photos while I was there. And, you know, you, make, you get to make really strong relationships um, with the people you meet there as well. I think I was just blown away by the way that uh, these families would invite us into their tents make us tea, offer us um, whatever food they had. You know, I think even though um, they didn't have much, there was also with them this really strong sense of hospitality and that, you know, we were sort of entering their home and they kept Mm -hmm. their tents as clean as possible. They were constantly um, wiping, sweeping the floor, cleaning the dishes. um, And this space really did feel like a little home. And so we got to know... Uh, this this family really well, um, and the nice thing was that we were able. I was able to keep up with them uh, throughout my Fulbright. Like when they moved to Athens at one point, and they were staying uh, in an apartment not far from where I was staying, and uh, I I took the two uh, little kids out to to see the Star Wars movie. Um, awesome. <laughs> I came out, and so it, it's been really nice to be able to keep in touch uh, with them. Uh, even after this experience. Wow, that's so interesting to hear. I'll definitely, I'm going to link to that essay in, in the show notes because it, like you said, the photos you took were beautiful and, and it's a great essay. Thank you so much, Emily. So I'm sure our listeners won't know this. You sort of mentioned it in the beginning, but but you were once long ago before my time an intern at The Common and, and you spearheaded the launch of The Common's first podcast series, which was called Contributors in Conversation. Um, I feel like what we're doing now is really like the reboot of that. <laughs> um, what can you tell us about your time at the common and, and, and about working on the podcast? So I, I had such a great time working at the common. Um, you know, it's when I started my MFA program uh, in 2013, I really wanted to, to gain some experience working for a really cool literary magazine. And I, I was so fortunate to connect with Jen at the, I think at this time, the common had had maybe five, maybe four or five issues out at that point, but it already had this very distinct style. Um, you know, from the beginning, it had these really eye-catching, colorful color covers that focused on a single object. Um, I read the first couple issues, and they the work in there really grabbed me because I think uh, a sense of place is is something that's really overlooked in fiction, but something that continu- contributes so much to the environment and the atmosphere of an essay or a story. Um, and so I was really, really excited to be a part of the magazine. And uh, at first I was working as the um, publicity and uh, events coordinator. And so I was putting on different events uh, in, uh, in Amherst. Uh, for launches of the magazine. And so in that way, it helped me to get to know um, the community uh, in in Northampton and in Amherst. And then 
I, I was talking with Jen and um, we were really excited about putting together a podcast uh, to as another way of engaging with the material in the magazine to provide sort of, um, yeah, extra, extra information, extra insight into the pieces in each mm-hmm. issue. And um, for me, it was so exciting to be able to connect with the contributors through the podcast because I just, I love the work that was published uh, so much. And so it also gave me this extra insight to be able to speak with them and uh, to help to put together the podcast. I think, I think the way that we were doing it was more, more complicated than, uh, so it was a little bit difficult to do all the editing and um, the cutting down and things like that. Um, but I'm so happy that um, you've sort of resurrected it. And I think this format is, uh, is really, really great. Oh, thanks. I, yeah, I really, I definitely feel like the thing that I get out of it is that opportunity to, to engage again, like you said, with the material, because, you know, we spend so long working on this material, especially the material in the issue, you know, it goes through so many edits and, and we love it so much. And then it goes out into the world and you don't really get to talk about it again with people. So, um, it's such a treat to be able to follow up with, with, the, with the authors of that work, you know, three months or six months after it came out and, and, and dive into it again and hope that the other people will do the same. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it really also um, inspires sort of uh, a deeper dive into the material and uh, additional discussions about issues related to, to each, each piece in the magazine. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one last question. What are you working on now? Like, what's next from you? So um, the reason that I'm in Alexandrupoli is because um, I am on a fellowship right now with this organization in Washington, D.C. called the Institute of Current World Affairs. Um, It's a very small organization, but they've been around for about 100 years. And each year they choose um, two or three people to send uh, anywhere in the world to pursue a project for two years. So right now there's, um, there's a fellow in India, there's a fellow in Turkey, um, there's a fellow in West Africa, and then there's me in Greece. And so I have, I have two years to pursue a project in Greece of my choosing. And I decided that I wanted to do a deep dive into Greece's borders, um, because I've spent most of my time living in the two biggest cities in Greece, um, Athens and Thessaloniki in the north. Um, But I really wanted to get a sense of what life is like sort of on the periphery, and especially in islands and and sort of in villages um, that border other countries that that have experienced this sort of um, trends of migration, mixing of cultures. And um, I think that Greece is also this really, um, it's, a, it's in this very strategic place in the Eastern Mediterranean at the crossroads between Europe, uh, Eurasia, and Africa. Mm-hmm. And so historically, there's been a lot of movement um, across, across Greece and across um, the modern, modern borders of Greece. Um, so as part of this is a writing fellowship. So every month I publish, um, 
uh, a dispatch or, or an essay about something I've learned uh, during the month in, uh, in each of these places. So I'm spending eight months uh, in Evros and Alexandrupoli, eight months in the northeastern Aegean islands of Hios and Lesbos, and then eight months in Crete. Um, so my first couple, I started this fellowship in October, and my first couple dispatches have been sort of an introduction to uh, the province of Evros, um, an exploration of the historical and cultural ties between uh, Istanbul and uh, and Thrace, and then um, I have I have an article that's coming out in a couple of days, which will be about uh, the port of Alexandrupoli, the increased uh, U.S. military presence there, and how um, that investment is uh, providing new opportunities for locals there. So for the next two years, I'll be writing these dispatches every month. And uh, I also really want to collect material for a book over the next two years. So that's what I'm going to say. That sounds like a book. <laughs> it should be a book. Uh, so wh- where are those? Oh, good, good. I'm glad. Where are those dispatches and essays published? They're online. Yeah, they're they're online at um, icwa.org, uh, and so there's a page for each of the fellows, and you can find uh, my dispatches there. Great. We will definitely link to that. That sounds so great. Um, that's a, yeah, a brilliant project. Stephen Tegel, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you. Emily, it's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Listeners, you can read Stephen's essay, Notes on Looking Back, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.